Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn to Acts. We are back in Acts. We are in chapter 23 this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 35. Acts chapter 12, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 23, verses 12 through 35. And the title uh, for the sermon this morning is God's quiet, invisible hand is always at work. His quiet, invisible hand is always at work. Acts 23, we'll start reading in verse 12. It says, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priest and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, and they have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. The tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there should be a plot against the man, I sent him out to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to read an interesting, moving 
part of scripture, the movement of the soldiers and of Paul being rescued from Jerusalem and taken to Caesarea. We're just thankful that even in this text that we read about, about the providence of God and the protection of God and the, the quiet, invisible hand of God that is always at work, even when we don't see or don't know what's going on behind the scenes, that you are our protector and you are our provider. You are our God. And we're your people. And we want to learn what we can from this text this morning that would encourage us and cause us to trust you even more. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Paderewski, the world-renowned Polish composer pianist, was scheduled to perform a concert at a great hall in America. It was an evening to remember, a black tux, long evening dress, high society extravaganza. In the audience that evening sat a mother with her fidgety nine-year-old son. Weary of waiting for the concert to begin, the young boy squirmed constantly in his seat. His mother hoped that her boy would be encouraged to practice the piano once he heard the otherworldly Paderewski. That is, after all, why they were there. And when his mother turned to talk with some of the friends, the impatient boy could stay seated no longer. And so he quietly slipped away from her side, and strangely, he was drawn to the ebony concert Grand Steinway and its leather-tufted stool on the huge stage flooded with brilliant lights. And completely ignored by the sophisticated audience, the boy actually sat down at the stool, staring wide-eyed at the black and white keys. And he placed his small, shaking fingers in the right location and began to play chopsticks. The clatter of the crowd quickly ceased as they looked with frowning faces in his direction. Irritated and embarrassed, they began to shout at the bold youngster. Backstage, the master, overhearing the commotion, hurriedly grabbed his performer's coat and he rushed towards the stage. And he quietly stood behind the boy and began to improvise a counter melody to harmonize and to even enhance chopsticks. And as the two of them played together, Paderewski kept whispering in the boy's ears, keep going, don't quit, son, keep on playing, do not stop, do not quit. What a gracious genius. We've been called to play a spiritual tune for the Lord Jesus Christ. And though we have generally wanted to do our best, we have occasionally said the wrong thing at the wrong time. And perhaps we have not lived up to our own expectations, not to mention God's standard of service. Perhaps our best service sometimes sounds a little bit more like chopsticks than it does like Swan Lake. Maybe some in the galleries are trying to yell us off the stage. We know that we have a heavenly calling and we want to keep on playing for God, but we are desperately in need of encouragement. And at such times, Christ stands behind us and his presence is vivid and sustaining us. And he tells us, have courage, dear servant. I have more work for you to do. Just keep playing. Keep going. Do not stop. Do not quit. And then he adds his amazing and superior counter melody to ours, making the result something that honors him and is truly beautiful. In this passage this morning, we're looking at an Acts 
we are going to see that the names of God and of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit aren't mentioned in this text. And it's a notable absence that might even remind us of the book of Esther, where in that book too, the name of God is missing. But even though his name is missing in the book of Esther, as you know, his fingerprints are everywhere within the story. And while God's name is not mentioned in this text this morning, his fingerprints are present everywhere in this story. It's the quiet, invisible hand of God and his providence that's going to rescue Paul from this predicament, from this particular situation. And that's just how God works. God God works in various ways to accomplish his purposes, even when we can't see him. And in this text, the same Lord who promised Paul that he would get to Rome works through people and he works through circumstances and he works through little boys to accomplish his agenda. And we sometimes think that God isn't working when we don't see the obvious signs of his sovereignty, but never mistake the lack of the spectacular for the inactivity of God. He's always at work. He's always paying attention and he's always playing a counter melody to whatever it is you're doing to exalt his name and to encourage you and to be providentially behind everything it is that you're doing. His quiet, invisible hand is always at work. So today I wanna give you three headings from our text that will outline for us these truths. We're gonna see how number one, God used an unnamed nephew to expose a plot Number two, God used Claudius Lysias to protect Paul. And then number three, God used a Roman army to transport the prisoner. Let's start with number one. God used an unnamed nephew to expose a plot. If you are taking notes this morning, your first blank simply says, the evil plot is formed. The evil plot is formed, verses 12 through 15. It says, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and they bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy and they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we've strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, I realize it's been a few weeks since we've been back in Acts. I don't want to remind you of the context. Paul had been arrested in the temple and accused of bringing a Gentile into the Jewish courtyard. And at this time, all of Jerusalem was thrown into confusion and a raucous mob had formed in order to beat Paul to death. And his life was spared by this Roman tribune named Claudius Lysias. And Paul had requested to speak to the people in their own language. And he went on to share his testimony of how he had been born again when he saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And then he told them that salvation was not only for the Jews, but it was for the Gentiles. And it was at that statement that Acts 22, 22 says, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Paul was then dragged safely into the barracks and further questioned by the Roman commander. Getting nowhere, Lysias had Paul brought before the Sanhedrin where the high priest had Paul struck on the mouth. And perceiving that part of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, Paul cried out in Acts 23 verse 6, he said, brothers, I am a Pharisee. Son of the Pharisees, it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. 
And at this point, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees because the assembly was sharply divided over their views on the resurrection. And oddly enough, the Pharisees began to defend Paul while the Sadducees wanted to continue to prosecute. Read about that in Acts 23, look at verses 10 and 11, it says, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid of Paul, that he might be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify also in Rome. What an amazing promise of the Lord Jesus that in the midst of the heat, in the midst of the division, in the midst of the arguing and the fighting and the bickering, and as Paul's there, his life literally on the line, the Lord Jesus said, Paul, take courage. Take courage. You've been testifying about the facts of the gospel and the facts of the resurrection and the facts of your testimony, and you're going to do this same thing in Rome. This encouragement came at just the right time because the very next day, our text now, some of the Jews banded together to kill the Apostle Paul. In fact, more than 40 of them, young assassins under an oath, that they would eat nothing until they killed this imposter. They were zealots. They were the terrorists of the first century. And they were infuriated by Roman occupation. They, they hated the Sanhedrin. They hated the scribes and the Pharisees because they were convinced that the Jewish authorities at times had compromised and even betrayed them. Nevertheless, they would use the authorities whenever it was expedient for their goals. And their goal in this text is to kill Paul. And we often read about how People tie explosives to their bodies and become human suicide bombers. And we read about and maybe watched about the kamikaze pilots of World War II, if you've seen some of that footage, who did the same sort of thing. And perhaps one or two of the 12 disciples even were numbered amongst the group of the assassins and the terrorists, as we know that not Simon Peter, but the other Simon is listed in the Bible as being a zealot. And some would say that even Judas Iscariot is not just Judas from a place called Iscariot, but in R.C. Sproul's commentary, he suggests that it's very possible that it was Judas from Sisarai, which was the name of the assassins that was connected with the zealots. In fact, Josephus, well-known historian, reported that under the present regime, people routinely hired the Sisarai. They were known as the dagger men to assassinate their enemies. And originally, the Sisarai were an extremist faction of the zealots who used a cloak and dagger method to rid Israel of those considered to be enemies of an independent state. And they degenerated into nothing more than blades for hire. Josephus records, quote, the robbers went up with the greatest security at the festivals after this time and having weapons concealed in like manner as before and mingling themselves among the multitude, they slew certain of their own enemies and were subservient to other men for money and slew others, not only in remote parts of the city, but in the temple itself also. For they had the boldness to murder men there without thinking of the impiety of which they were guilty." And so we read about this 
this common occurrence that was happening in the first century. And so what's happening here is that there was this conspiracy of more than 40 men that were probably aligned and maybe even working with the Sadducees who had approached the high priest and his cronies with a plan. And the chief priest would call another meeting of the Sanhedrin on the pretext of giving Paul a fair, he- a fair hearing. But they would make sure that Paul never made it across the courtyard as they were going to murder him in cold blood. And they had bound themselves to this plot with an unusually severe oath. In fact, the word that's used here is the word to anathematize. That's the word that's used in the original. You may know that that's that's the word where we get anathema. It literally means invoking divine judgment if they failed to carry out their oath. They're probably saying something like, may God do to us and more if we eat or drink anything until Paul is dead. It's like what King Saul said when he was angry at Jonathan for protecting David in 1 Samuel 14, 44. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. David said something similar after Joab killed Abner in 2 Samuel 2.35. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else until the sun goes down. The same word anathema that's used by Paul in Galatians Chapter 1, verse 8, that's probably where we're more familiar with it in a New Testament context, where it says here, Paul writes, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be to you accursed. And there's the word, anathema. Let him be accursed or let him be anathema. And so the scene here in Acts 23 is tragically reminiscent of Jesus' death, both Jesus and Paul were Jews. They were both preachers of the gospel to their people. They were both guilty of no crime, yet both were plotted against and both stood before a confused Sanhedrin and both were prisoners even in the same Fort Antonia there at the Temple Mount. And Paul truly did, as Philippians 3.10 says, share in the sufferings of Christ. The fact that the conspirators assumed that the Sanhedrin's leadership would take part in a murder plot also shows much about the state of corruption in Israel's highest court. They'd murdered Jesus, they're ready now to murder Paul. But God, as God would have it, our next blank says the evil plot is overheard. The evil plot is overheard, verses 16 through 18. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you and he has something to say to you. What we're seeing again is that it's in God's providence with so many conspirators involved in God's providence, this this plot would not be kept secret for long. It would be Paul's nephew of all people, the son of his sister, who overheard that plot and he went into the barracks to tell Paul. Now this is the the only time in scripture where anything about Paul's family is even mentioned, which obviously brings up a host of questions. We we do get the impression from Philippians 3.8 that Paul had somehow lost connection with his family after his conversion. 
You remember in Philippians 3 where Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And many of the commentators say on that passage that it may be that Paul abandoned his family that he moved on from his family that were Jewish because of his conversion and his service as unto the Lord. In fact, it was the Lord Jesus who said in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So again, Jesus isn't saying literally you need to hate all your family, but he's saying that Christ comes first. Christ always comes first. And of course, Christ commands us to love our wives and to submit to our husbands and to foster and teach our kids as we talked about this morning. But the point is, the priority of your life is always Jesus. And unfortunately, the pull is sometimes really strong on family members, particularly if they're of a Jewish background or a Catholic background or a Mormon background that has a stronghold that these people have trouble leaving those systems of faith because they'll be denounced by their family. And so the idea here is that Paul is going with Jesus. And while we don't know all the facts about Paul's family relationships, we do know that he counted everything as a loss compared to knowing Christ. And for Christ's sake, he was willing to suffer the loss of all things. And we too must be willing to face any persecution, any abandonment, and any criticism, even if it would be from our own family if necessary, in order to serve the king. And may we never see prioritizing Christ as a detriment or as a duty, but serving Christ and keeping our hand to the plow is a delight and it's an honor and it's, it's a privilege. And the point related here is that Paul's nephew told Paul about the ambush and it's anyone's guess how old Paul's nephew was. He could have been a teenager or he could have even been a young boy. If you read in verse 19, it says the tribune took him by the hand. So it seems to me that he was a pretty young fellow. We don't know, again, how it was that the nephew was able to hear about the plan. Maybe the zealots underestimated him and were speaking freely in front of him, not knowing that he was even paying attention. Regardless, this unnamed nephew becomes an incredible advocate when he clearly is raised up for such a time as this. And at this point, Paul called over one of the centurions and he had him take his nephew to the tribune to report to him what he had overheard. And we can certainly marvel at the sovereignty of God here. The Lord, I think John even prayed this, but the Lord often uses little things and even little people, little children to accomplish his great purposes. It's out of the mouth of babes at times that what children say that are a testimony to the greatness of God. And in this occasion, God uses this little boy. This nephew was a little boy who brought the the two loaves and the fish. It was a little boy so many times in scripture that we see is there's something precious about the innocence of how God orchestrates and ordains and providentially moves in big, powerful systems and in little bitty people to accomplish his plan. And so while Paul finds himself in the midst of a stressful situation, with the Lord's help, he's able to think and to act rationally. We may prefer to read something like this in a suspenseful novel or to unfold in an action movie, but this is happening for Paul in real life. I mean, in this passage, Paul is the object of a terrorist attack, and he will find himself as a 
defend it in a tense court case which looks unwinnable. John Stott said of Paul's chances of surviving the attacks of the angry Jews and the mighty Romans resemble that of a butterfly before a steamroller. Yet the apostle remains calm and courageous and submitting to the sovereign plan and to the power of God. We also see next in your outline the evil plot is revealed. It's revealed in verses 19 through 22. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire something uh, somewhat more closely about him, but do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him and have bound themselves by an oath to to neither eat or drink until they have killed him and now they are ready waiting for your consent so the tribune dismissed the young man charging him tell no one that you have informed me of these things so Lysias asked Paul's nephew what is it that you have to tell me. And Paul's nephew not only gave a complete account of the plot, but he even gave a fervent plea to the commander not to yield to the demand of the Jews to have Paul brought to them. And when the tribune had heard the story, he dismissed the young man with clear instructions not to tell anyone else of their meeting together. And he now realized that he had to take prompt and decisive action in order to deliver his prisoner from the burning wrath of the Jews. This story, again, illustrates the seamless combination of God's sovereignty and human involvement to bring about his perfect plan. Remember, the Lord had already promised Paul that he would get to Rome and God would preserve his plan through the actions even of individuals. And the nephew hears of the conspiracy and he relates it to Paul and Paul acts wisely. And the Roman centurion does his job and Lysias acts to protect Paul. There are no burning bushes in this account involved in Paul's rescue. There's no light from heaven. There's no prison doors opening in the middle of the night. But what we do see is that Paul's life is spared as the result of people doing what was right in front of them. And what we do see is that God was ultimately sovereign over and providential in bringing all of these various actions from different people of different walks of life together to accomplish his greater purpose. Proverbs cautions against the plotting of wicked schemes. Proverbs 24, eight and nine say, whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of folly is sin and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. Evil schemers will not accomplish their goal if it conflicts with God's plan. Evil schemers will not succeed if God causes their plans to fail. Evil schemers and scoffers are foolish and are an abomination to all mankind. I wonder if Paul might have even thought of Psalm 91, which says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler and you will not fear the terror of the night for the arrow nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness nor the destruction that wastes away at noonday. 
I wonder if Paul might have been thinking about a psalm like that, just knowing, hey, I'm in the Lord's head. Jesus already told me I'm going to Rome. I know that there's an ambush. I know it looks dim. I know it looks like there's a long stretch here, but I'm with God. And he's called me to do what he's called me to do. And so even while in custody, Paul is dwelling under the shadow of the Most High. And even while he's in chains, he's abiding under the shadow of the Almighty. And I think in a similar way for you and for me today, that no matter what trouble you face, no matter what predicament you're in, hopefully you can say to the Lord today, you are my refuge. You are my fortress You are my high tower. You are my God in whom I trust. And no matter how discouraged you may be today, God will deliver you from the snare. The ultimate deliverance, as we know, is always heaven. But he delivers us with, sometimes with perspective. And sometimes he delivers us with a change of heart and a change of attitude. And sometimes he delivers us physically like he does for Paul. But there's still the promise that he will cover you with his wings and he will protect you and he will care for you. And in him, you will find refuge. And so now that we've seen how God used an unnamed nephew to expose an evil plot, let's look secondly, our second major heading, and how God uses Claudius Lysias to protect Paul. In your next blank says the intimidating escort. Verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. Go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So Lysias immediately responded to the threat when he heard about the report and he makes plans to transfer Paul that very evening to Caesarea. This coastal city of Caesarea was named after Augustus Caesar, and it's a beautiful harbor on the Mediterranean Sea, about 65 miles from Jerusalem. It served as a headquarters for many of the Roman military forces. And so to protect Paul, Lysias summoned two centurions. Each centurion would have had 100 soldiers each, so that's a total of 200 infantrymen. And these were Roman legionnaires, the most formidable troops in the ancient world. And then also 70 horsemen from the cohort's cavalry detachment were also sent, along with 200 lightly armed spearmen or javelin throwers. All in all, this heavily armed force was an intimidating escort of 470 men. So Lysias obviously wasn't taking any chances And he was not even willing to wait until the morning. They were to leave at the third hour of the night. If you read that in your text, there's a little marker there that says that would have been around 9 p.m. They're taking the red eye from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And throughout the book of Acts, Luke speaks favorably of Roman military officers, beginning with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. There's actually no record in the book of Acts of an official Roman persecution against the church. The opposition was instigated by the unbelieving Jews. And while the Roman Empire certainly had its share of corrupt political opportunists, for the most part, the military leaders were men of quality who represented the ideal of Roman law. Lysias' plan was simple and wise. He knew he had to get Paul out of Jerusalem or there would be one murderous plot after another until one of them might just succeed. 
He also knew that he had better determined the charges against Paul or he might be accused of illegally holding a Roman citizen without cause. He could solve both problems by sending Paul to Caesarea and putting him under the authority of Felix, the Roman governor. This action is a reminder that God can use even secular governments to achieve his purposes. And we see God's rule over the affairs of people and nations throughout the scripture, as we certainly are familiar with Proverbs 21.1 that says the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Also, It's interesting to note that once again in his career, Paul was smuggled out of the city under the cover of night. This happened to Paul when he was let down through an opening in the wall, being lowered down in a basket in Damascus in Acts 9.25. The disciples had also immediately sent Paul off at night from Thessalonica to Berea in Acts 17.10. And so here again, God is providing an escape for Paul under the cover of darkness. Paul would not die before the appointed time and before he would testify in Rome as Jesus had said. Job 14 verse 5 says that the number of our days is already decided by God. Psalm 139 verse 16 says that every one of our days is numbered in God's book. So take courage and live your life for God and do not be afraid. Your life is in his hands. Let's look now at the clarifying letter, verses 25 to 30, the clarifying letter of Felix. In the first part of the letter here, we're just going to call this section, Not So Excellent. Not So Excellent, and you'll get what I mean here as we look at verse 25, and he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. Felix, while was while he was indeed the governor, certainly didn't have an exemplary character. He was known as being violent, licentious, and he was an ineffective governor of the Roman province of Judea. He actually rose to his official position because of his brother, Paulus, who was for a number of years the head of the imperial civil service. Felix had married three different women of noble birth, and Drusilla The daughter of King Herod Agrippa I was his third wife, and she was a woman of legendary beauty who apparently divorced her husband in order to marry Felix. And eventually, Felix would get recalled by Rome because of the way that he later mishandled riots in Caesarea. So we kind of get the sense with that background information from various commentators and even Josephus that Lysias is definitely being diplomatic in his address to Felix. This is political talk. This is Lysias brown-nosing Felix. That's what you do. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Oh, most excellent Felix. Please, take this prisoner off my hands. Verse 27, your next blank. His letter's also not so truthful. It's not so truthful. In verse 27, we read that this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Well, if you remember, while the letter gives a reasonable general summary of the events leading up to the sending of Paul to Caesarea, it wasn't totally accurate. Lysias did embellish things to put himself in the best possible light. Contrary to what he wrote, he did not 
discover Paul's Roman citizenship until after he had arrested him. And the letter also makes it sound like he saved Paul from being killed by the Jews, which he did, but it also says, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. If you remember, Lysias was actually going to examine Paul through scourging with a cat of nine tails whip. And it was only then that Paul asked, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Lysias also failed to mention his erroneous assumption that Paul was the famed Egyptian troublemaker. So you can see how Lysias is trying to come across here as a top-notch Roman commander who rescued a Roman citizen from death and therefore may be recognized as some kind of hero. We also see in the letter, the most important part, verses 28 to 30, not so fast, not so fast is what I'm calling this section in verse 28 through 30, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council. I, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there was a plot against the man, I sent him down to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him." This would actually be the good part. I know the first two were kind of negative, but the not so fast was meaning to say the plot's not going to accomplish its goal. Not so fast because he's now going to intervene. And here Lysias does indeed note that his efforts to resolve the case were extraordinary. In informing Felix that he tried to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, he brought Paul down to their council. And this statement that Paul was under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment is essentially declaring him to be innocent. And so the problem evidently had to do with their religious law and their theological differences. And Luke once again weaves into the theme of Acts that Christians are not dangerous, law-breaking citizens. These events remind us of Paul's experience in Corinth. After some discouragement, the Lord had reassured Paul of his presence and protection, and immediately following that encouraging word, angry Jews attempted to attack Paul. But when the Jews bring their charges to Gallio, uh, Ga- Galileo, oh man, Gallio, I'm just going to call him Gallio, he dismisses their complaints and insignificant quibbling over their theology. We also learned that in Ephesus, the town clerk told 25,000 people that Christians were innocent of any crime. Now some, I'm pointing this out because some historical revisionists have tried to claim that the early Christians were criminals. Nero accused the Christians of doing all kinds of things and therefore he burned down Rome and blamed it on the Christians and people said that Christians would would be imprisoned for various acts of injustice and they would have them arrested and and go out into the gladiator stage and they even pointed to Jesus who was the leader who, who died as a criminal to support their argument that he was sentenced by a Roman governor and crucified. But we know that's not true, right? All four gospel writers go to great length to say that Jesus was innocent. Even Pilate recognized that Jesus should have been acquitted. In Luke 23, verse 4, then Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. And so here is another parallel between Paul's trials and those of the Savior. The application for us is simple. Christians should be honorable citizens. 
We shouldn't be ruthless pragmatists, breaking laws for the sake of our causes and claiming that we're acting in the name of God. And when the laws of the land don't hinder us from living out our faith, then we should abide by the rule of law as model citizens. At the same time, we have learned over the last few years that we will not be silent. We will not be afraid to speak out, and we will not continue to vacate this worship center. We will come together, and we will gather together to sing, and we will gather together for the preaching of the word, and we will gather together for fellowship, and when we do, we will preach Christ and the gospel, and we will call out sin for what it is, and we'll exalt the risen Savior, Jesus. We were just studying from Revelation and Mighty Man this last Wednesday, and we had a glorious time looking at the book of Revelation, just reminding it's all about Jesus. That's what we stand for. That's what we live for. Jesus is and will forever be our Savior, and we will proclaim him without apology and without intimidation and without fear because in the book of Revelation, we see that Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from among the dead. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is the first and the last. He is the son of God. He's holy and true. Jesus is the amen, the faithful one and the one who lives. He is the lion of Judah, the root of David and the lamb of God. Jesus is the living word. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the alpha and the omega, the bright morning star and Lord of all. So we're gonna keep proclaiming Jesus no matter what happens. No matter what the government does, no matter what this world does, we preach Christ. And that's why Paul ultimately was arrested. He's preaching a resurrection message. And he's saying that all who come to him can be born again, but they need to repent, right, of their sins and to by faith believe in the Lord Jesus. Let's go back to our letter, all right? Back to the letter. Then Lysias closes the letter by giving his reasons for burdening Felix with Paul's case. Lysias made a wise decision in sending Paul to Caesarea, and he didn't have the authority to rule in a dispute between a citizen of Rome and the local government. And so after his attempt to help settle the matter locally, he sent Paul to the appropriate authority and invited the temple leaders to press their complaints legally before the governor. At this point, no doubt, Paul might be feeling a little out of control. I told you he knows Jesus is in control, but at some point, we're just inferring that there is maybe at some point human nature is what, what's God up to. I mean, let's face it, we all feel a little more secure when we are in control and when we're calling the shots. Researchers have even confirmed this as a fact while studying medical patients, those who know about their illness and understand the reasons for certain treatment plans actually respond better and recover more consistently. While patients who know less about their conditions or, or why they should follow a certain course of treatment experience the highest levels of stress and struggle, and struggle uh, more to heal. Uh, the best doctors take the time to explain the ailment and to explain the treatment. And all of us have had times when we feel utterly powerless, whether it be with a medical condition or a financial hardship, or some type of natural disaster. When we lived in Houston, we faced one of those mighty hurricanes, and one night a tree came crashing down on our roof right over our bed, and we were powerless. Except my wife said, honey, what's going on? I said, baby, I got you. I got you. Don't worry, honey, I'll fight the tree. 
It, did, it didn't come through, but it's in those moments, you know, where you just kind of feel the earth shaking. Uh, not like an earthquake here, but th- from, from the hurricane, you know, the house is shaking and you're just like, we're powerless. Like we, we, we belong to God. We trust in the Lord, but there's nothing we can do. Certainly at some point, Paul was feeling this way as all this commotion's going on around him, but he remembered again the conversation with Jesus. And there's a couple of times when Christ had said things to him as through Ananias after Paul was converted. If you remember Acts 9, 15, and 16, when the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then again, we already looked at after Paul had been arrested here in Jerusalem. We read in verse 11 of Acts 23 that Jesus had said to him, take courage as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so must you testify in Rome. I'm just reminding us this morning that Jesus is in control. And he told us in John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So when we have been informed of our condition, Jesus says also about life in general in John 16, 33 to his disciples, he says, I have told you these things that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so let me just remind you this morning with the truth that you are not in control of your circumstances and thank God you're not. Jesus is in control, and he's in full control, and he has you in the palm of his hand, and he knows you by name, and he has set his love upon you as his covenant child, and he's rescued you from the dominion of darkness, and he's brought you into the kingdom of light. He is your shield, and he is your high tower, and he is your light, and he's your salvation, and Jesus goes before you, and he is behind you, and he will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Don't be In fear today, do not be dismayed. Rest in him this morning. May his joy be your strength. May his wisdom be your guard. May Christ be your anchor in the midst of the storm. We've seen how God used Paul's nephew to expose an evil plot. And we've seen how Claudius Lysias protected Paul with his escape plan and with this letter. And now we're gonna see, number three, that God uses a Roman army to transport the prisoner. The next blank says, safe arrival to Caesarea. Safe arrival to Caesarea. In verses 31 through 33, we read where it says, so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. So Antipatris was a Roman military post about 40 miles from Jerusalem in the coastal plain of Samaria. It was a a military spot, and so this escort stayed there for the night, and and at this point, it was determined that the most dangerous part of the passage was behind them, so the centurion sent the foot soldiers back to Jerusalem. The cavalry would be more than capable of covering the remaining 25 miles to Caesarea, which leads us to our last blank, the agreement 
to take the case. Verses 34 and 35, on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So Felix received the prisoner, read the letter, and began to assess the situation. Felix then asked what province Paul was from, and the answer would determine whether Felix had jurisdiction to hear his case. And when he learned that Paul was from Cilicia, he agreed to hear his case, since Cilicia, like Judea, was at that time under the general area of Syria. Felix had the authority and the responsibility to try Paul's case. He then informed the apostle, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also. Meanwhile, he ordered that Paul be kept in Herod's praetorium, the governor's palace and official residence. And so the stage is now set for the first hearing in the series of Paul's trials in the Roman system. So in review, the nephew exposes the plot, Lysias reports the plot to Felix in a letter, and the soldiers successfully transport Paul to Caesarea. And all of this occurs under the sovereign rule and providence of our great God. One commentator explains, sometimes God delivers his children by the simple word of a young relative. Sometimes he has to call in the Calvary. At all times, he is ultimately in charge. God has an infinite number of options for working out his divine will in our lives. And while our daily lives might not look spectacular, we can be assured that God is involved in every affair of every person. It's Philippians 1.6 where Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Trust in the Lord, especially in difficult circumstances. Thank God for his care and for his provision. God's providential protection of Paul demonstrates his faithfulness. And based on his own experiences, Paul could certainly declare, as he did in 1 Corinthians 1.9, that God is faithful. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. God demonstrated his care for Paul by sovereignly providing a safe and comfortable trip to Caesarea and now by providing the best of accommodations when he arrived there, he's staying in Herod's house, a five-star palace there on the harbor of the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, Paul really did experience the truth expressed by Peter in 1 Peter 5, 7, that we are to be casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. God's quiet, invisible hand is always at work. May it be at work in your life in this very moment. In this very moment, you may be here at our church and you've never turned from your sin and turned to Christ At this very moment, you may be visiting or you may have been here for a long time and God works through the preaching of his word and the proclamation of the gospel to draw your heart out of darkness into light. At this very moment, I'm calling you to come to Christ. I'm inviting you into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can experience his providential hand in your life. But first, you need to come to Christ to turn from your sin, to realize that your ways are futile, 
to realize that the wages of your sin is death, and then to know that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Won't you come to him this morning? You're in trouble. You're afraid. You're frustrated with how life's going. You need Christ this morning. And whether that's coming to Christ for the first time as a true newborn babe in Christ or whether you need us to be able to maybe serve you and minister to you, we'll have a few people right here by this door after we sing the last song. It would be our joy, our privilege to share with you and to encourage you and to point you to the Lord Jesus. Maybe the take-home section here of some of these applications would be an encouragement to you. Number one, refuse to wrestle and learn to totally depend on God's wisdom and his strength. Don't do it on your own. You've got to, to stop wrestling in maybe your own strength and just depend on God's wisdom and his strength. Number two, release your pent-up anxiety and rely on God's peace revealed to us through Christ. Number three, resist that tendency to take matters into your own hands and again, rest in God's providence. God's quiet, invisible hand is always at work. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the, the interesting, fast-moving story, account, narrative here in Acts about Paul's rescue from Jerusalem and his arrival by safe passage in Caesarea. There's so many wonderful things that we see in the text of your providence through a little boy, a young nephew, your providence through a Roman tribune, your providence through a Roman army. God, you're always at work. You promise to never leave us or forsake us. You promised Paul that he would get to Rome to share his testimony about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And we know that you're not finished with us yet. That no matter what we're going through in life, whether it seems like we're stuck in a really bad place or facing an, a, 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 a really uh, difficult foe, we know that you are our God. You're a mighty warrior. You're a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father. So we come to you this morning through the Lord Jesus Christ to, to depend upon you and to look to you for wisdom and to rest in Christ's finished work on the cross that we would have life and have it more abundantly and that we would walk with courage this week, whatever we face and whatever challenges come up against us, that we would remember that your quiet and visible hand is at work in every moment of every day. So help us look to you and to worship you with all of our hearts this morning and throughout this week. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.